You guys are putting me for it today, boy. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited this week to be joined by Leanne Renault, who is a scholar of English. I'm going to say English, Leanne. Yeah, let's go. In the university, <laughs> in the University of Bristol, where there is more than one black member of staff in your department, which me and T say just can't get over. <laughs> It's a takeover. It's a takeover. Listen. It's, it's a takeover. takeover. It's amazing. <laughs> but we're so excited to have Leanne on the show because we're going to be covering a topic about Caribbean families and in particular talking about matrifocality. This is something that's close to our heart, I think, on the show. Your writing is absolutely amazing on this. We're going to put some of your work in the episode notes, so do check it out, guys. Leanne, Talk us through your journey. Yeah, so this is my PhD research. And I remember getting to the end of my master's and being like, okay, I, I need to do something. And it's got to be Caribbean. And I, I, so the way I, I came to this topic is literally I just read everything. I was just reading novels. That, that's, that's it. And I just kept coming up against these representations of... Um, either families or communities where women were at the centre driving um, those families and communities. And I thought, oh, OK, well, let's let's think about that. I can't remember where I came across this word matrifocal. I don't know how, mm. I, I don't know what I was reading at the time, but I saw it, looked it up and I thought, yeah, that's it. There's something about matrifocality that works better than matriarchy or matriarchy. There's there's something about the language that kind of resonated with me. That was it. Kept reading, kept finding more examples of, of kind of fictional representations of these matrifocal communities and families and got to work, essentially. When I first started reading your stuff, Leanne, it reminded me of Augustown and the Book of Night Women, they're such powerful books that sort of like really just enter your soul, like mm. the, the tears and the, the spirituality, the there's something so powerful about them. And I think you hit the nail on the head by focusing on the matrifocal mm-hmm. element. When we say matrifocal, what do we mean by that? I guess the, the most basic definition of matrifocal is mother-focused or mother-centred. Um, So it's this idea that you have women in their roles as mothers or mother-like figures at the centre of a family or a community. And from that centre, these kind of families and community units grow out from there. And there's something that I liked about the idea of women in these roles as being central rather than on top of, of a family unit. So instead of it being patriarchal, it being matriarchal. I think using the word matrifocal takes a little bit away from that kind of hierarchical structure. Nice. Matriarchy being a kind of hierarchical thing, so the head of a household, and by the order thing that head implies control over finances, control over all these other things. So is that the kind of emphasis where matrifocal thinks centers women a relational context, whereas matriarchy is a kind of structured, top-down, heavy 
thing. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. It's definitely kind of more relational than kind of hierarchical. I guess the other thing to say is that in the in the literature where you're we're starting to get these definitions of matrifocality, so in um, sociology and anthropology, they um, even kind of these really old school European perspectives that were incredibly racist recognised that you could have a matrifocal family wherein there were two parents in the house. Matrifocality is not the same thing as single parent household. They're actually two different things because it's not so much about breadwinners and putting yourself at the top of the family. Matrifocality actually is more about the hub of the love, essentially. It's kind of the starting place for these kind of networks of care that expand outwards. Do you know what I'm getting this is like classic me even though we're talking about something that's filled with love and like power and transformative and radical I'm getting pissed off because I'm thinking about men like Trevor Phillip like saying <laughs> that black women like heading up families are sort of to the detriment of black boys it's such a reductive uninspired just stupid discourse that is just dominated mm. perceptions of Caribbean families and matrifocal families as well for decades centuries and that's something that I feel like you cover really well in your writing Leanne and when I was reading you talking about sort of like 19th century perceptions I was like oh my god that sounds like the UK now mm-hmm. like mm. the the sort of stigmatization of women sort of like having this matrifocal family set up and it being something that was stigmatized and that was seen as disorderly. Like yeah. it was just like this, it's so present within our, within how our understandings of the family today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting. So we're, we're talking about um, scholarship from, from 100 years ago, and we're still seeing that play out, not only in kind of the way that the Caribbean is perceived, but also in in the way that Black British families and communities are perceived. So um, in the introduction to my thesis, I talk about the fact that I think maybe in the 1930s, um, some colonial administrators went to Jamaica and they saw that there were these, what they called disintegrate families or disorderly, they use all kinds of horrible words to describe them. And it was a problem to be fixed. Colonial administrators wrote back and was just like, look at these families, they're not getting married. The women are the heads of their households. This is a problem that needs to be fixed. Treating Caribbean families as a problem is something that we're still seeing today in the ways in which, like you said, the idiot Trevor Phillips or whatever his name is, <laughs> is kind of talking about black women as um, as kind of single mothers or whatever, as kind of being detrimental to to the to black boys or black men Mm. it's 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 interesting that we can we literally can see the lineage of this this kind of thought um Mm. just by tracing how they treated families in in the west indies so before i become become politically aware before i become socially aware i'm trying to make sense of my world right Mm. i'm trying to understand the context like how comes all my friends including myself none of our dads live with us and you're trying to make sense of this world and you're trying to understand like, how is this the case? And then obviously you don't exist in a vacuum. So these ideas are you born into them. Mm. And for a long time, I was part of, I was part of a reductive narrative. And as I've got older, 
and I speak to some of my friends, a lot of my friends are still in that reductive narrative because to them it's a way of trying to make sense of the world that they're in. And not everyone has the kind of privilege that we have of having that curiosity to go go out and find more and understand better. So they, these guys are sitting there thinking, well, and unfortunately some of them re- recreate that thing, which they're trying mm. to understand. And some of them firmly out reject it, but it's a funny mess of trying to understand like, what the fuck? How has this even happened? And sometimes they look reductively back in the past and say, well, this is it. It's because women are trying to either exclude me or there's mm. a, a numerous amount of reasons. But it's part of that thing, you're trying to understand like this thing yeah. I've been born into. Yeah, but I guess imagine if we were given the language straight away. Mm. You know? <laughs> no, I, imagine, I, agree. I agree. Yeah. Imagine if we <laughs> if we weren't told essentially in everything. In, in all of the programming that we receive as kids that the, there is a right way to have a family and that right way is nuclear like imagine mm-hmm. if we just thought about this in a just you know if we just kind of slightly twinged our way of thinking if we started thinking about all of these different ways that we can connect all of the different ways that women provide care but also like men provide care as well and this is one of the really nice things that I, I like about a lot of the scholarship or like the more contemporary scholarship on matrifocality is that they're thinking through also the roles of men, you know. So um, I think uh, Christine Barrow, for example, she wrote a, a book called Family in the Caribbean. It's about 20 years old now. Um, and she, she talks about the fact that, yes, there are um, single parent households in the Caribbean. Yes, there are absent fathers. But actually, there are other ways that men in the family are are playing these roles. What about uncles? What about grandfathers? What about brothers? What about, you know, all of these different ways in which we are creating these families? They just look a little bit different, I guess. Again, once you're engaged in this debate, at different points in my life, I viewed the men in my life as fucking wastemen at some point. Mm. My dad was never absent. It was always there in some capacity in the background, right. but not in it, not in the traditional sense, right? Mm. So, because of this, these, these narratives that existed, I've tended to give the men in my life a harder ride, right? <laughs> I've held them up to a different standard. So, my stepdad or my dad, invariably, when we talk about them on, on a superficial level and an anecdotal level, would always come up with more negative statements than my mum, mm. just simply because the nature of how the nature of immediate care that I used to see, but. Over time, and I started thinking about it in a bit more in a bit more nuanced way. Some of the some of the traits I see in me are from him, from his guidance, from his what he contributed to my life. And sometimes, if I'm honest, I'm pissed because he hurt my mum. I guess when I'm looking at the, your work at the end, and I'm reading, I think, yeah, boom, that's it. Because all my life and all my friends, like I said to you earlier in the preacher, that none of my friends had a nuclear family. All, mm. We all come from individual family units, which is spread with a wider unit of extended family members and friends. That's, that was just normal, right? It's making me think as well, Leanne, just following mm. on from Tiso's point as well, like reading your work, it really pushes me because it makes me quite emotional because it, it makes me think about how colonialism or coloniality becomes embodied within our interpersonal relations mm. and how we understand each other. And what I mean by that is, like you were talking, Tiso was talking about sort of the men around him sort of in their own way talking about matrifocal households and them seeing it as something negative and them seeing it as something that's disorderly that's something that's been taught that's something that has been 
told to us like time and time again for for decades and decades for centuries that like that way of having a family is something that isn't good for men or it's something that isn't good for women isn't good for us Mm. as a people and it yeah it just makes me really emotional because it's like when you actually hear that stuff within the interpersonal amongst kin you're like that isn't that's from something that was built to to oppress us Mm. and it's it's just it is it's quite but it's quite painful like do you know know, god trust me trust us t like we're quite weird like this is like supposed to be like a radical radical love it's supposed to be about love this episode and me and t are like straight in the straight in the trauma (laughs) yeah yeah I guess that's like the sad thing about it is the ways in which we have internalized these things. Yeah. You know, we've internalized that these kind of negative perceptions of something that actually as kind of children of the Caribbean diaspora is 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 almost part and parcel of of who we are, you know. Matrifocality, I mean it's not a, a phenomenon that's u- unique to the Caribbean at all. Something that is almost embedded in our societies the ways in which women are central in our societies this is this shouldn't be something that we are just learning the vocabulary for now it's something that we should always have known but the colonizer said no and so here we are trying to kind of work through all of the traumas um, that have come with us not having the language to speak on it uh, to to kind of recognize it and appreciate it for what it is, and that's really sad. What do you think the impact of slavery, especially in the West Indian context, had on the family unit? Is it this is this one of the main reasons why? Because uh, again, within my friendship group with my boys from school, that's one of the things that comes up because I would say they're all great dads, man. They're all yeah, they're good guys, mm-hmm. man. And one of the things they they kind of talk about is this upright guy that kind of stands up for their family as against the kind of a colonial slave kind of context. You guys are putting me for it today, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> there tends to be kind of two main arguments about the, the roots of matrifocality in the, in the region, and both linked with slavery. The first is that under the conditions of slavery, the family unit simply couldn't thrive that there was no way for it to thrive and so what you ended up having was you ended up having mothers and their children being together for a certain amount of time I guess because it was necessary Uh, and then fathers being absent or kind of elsewhere or else just not part of that that unit and then the second argument is that matrifocality is almost like a, a truncated derivation of West African family traditions there is evidence to show that particular kind of West African nations were matrilineal in nature, which is to say that things were passed down through the mother's line. So, mm. I don't know, things like names, assets and stuff like that. Some people think that matrifocality is a version of that, I guess a creolized mm. version of that, as with okay. many things in the Caribbean, right? For me, I, I think I go back and forwards on where I sit with with this question annoying that way I'm afraid I don't I don't quite have an answer for it I think there's merit in both of these arguments but I guess because I think of matrifocality as um, having so much potential to think of it first and foremost as a product of kind of of brokenness 
it jars me a little bit. And so I, I guess for me, I'm still trying to reconcile in my mind how I feel about these these arguments. I don't think I really have a, an, a, an answer. Yeah. I tend to think of genealogies like that as not being broken, but as in like, if you think of a line, but being ruptured. So there's right. a rupture in this. Mm. So, so there's still a continuity of the past, but there's there's a, a little tear in it that causes it, that creolization to take place to heal it. So like a scar. Mm. So it carries on, but in a changed form. I like that a lot. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's beautiful. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> you can have it, you can have it. No, but it's interesting because, I, like I said, I was, from when I read your work and reading it and how people situate, like, it, it was interesting, kind of some of the, some of the kind of literature there, where it was saying that like, the West Indies was used as a kind of a hot house, like a, like a kind of experiment place to kind of work out how we're going to work out how the black diaspora is going to work in different spaces, like in America. I'm like, wow, wow, is that is that how they were rolling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, please, can you break that down for us? Um, so the the Caribbean essentially was some sort of colonial playground, right? And they figured that all black people are the same essentially so if there are problems problems in quotation marks in the caribbean then these are problems elsewhere i.e africa and america and so we can try and test some of our ideas of how to fix these things in the caribbean so yeah it's a mess (laughs) (laughs) i don't i've never this that sounds really bad i've never really thought about it like that and I, ne- I can't, I can't actually like believe that that's what they colonize are. It's just pure evil. It's so evil. Like it's. I mean, I can't remember the guy's name, the famous playwright, and he said the, the West Indies needs to work because it, they didn't want it to be another island, as in mm. the Republic of Ireland. They wanted black people to be as industrious and not like the feckless Irish. So um, it was always seen as a. Was well, seen in some parts of the as an experiment in place, somewhere Absolutely. to kind of try out capitalism, try out all these things and bring them back, and it, and it worked, right? Because mm. look what happened. Mm. Yeah, big, big playgrounds, and it's interesting that I mean, it's still Britain. I mean, the Anglophone Caribbean is still Britain's playground, but I mean, equally, it's also still America's playgrounds. Like, if uh, you you only need to look at kind of Haiti and some of the things that. America have done to to Haitian people to know. I mean, even like the Grenadian Revolution, Mm -hmm. the kind of ease with which they invade this island of Mm a hundred thousand people. What threat, please? What threat? Tiso's family are Grenadian. Leanne, your family are Grenadian as well. Can we just do a little little segment on the Grenadian Revolution? Okay, so my history is poor, and I need to know way more about the Grenadian Revolution than I do, but. Essentially, in the 1970s, end of the 1970s, there was a peaceful revolution. Uh, It was a socialist revolution. And Maurice Bishop and his government came into power and they wanted to create this kind of socialist state in Grenada. Some of the strides that they made were incredible. So they, for, for instance, I think they either made school free or else they made it way more accessible. They created like a women's government who were interested in kind of safeguarding and looking after women to the point where even today, some of the, the laws that they have in place are from that socialist government there to protect women. But how well they're actually protecting women is a whole other story for another time. They worked on affordable housing, loads of different things. But America was worried because they were a socialist state that they were in cahoots with 
Cuba and Russia. Um, so they invaded, essentially, to get rid of the, the, the supposed desperate leader, Maurice Bishop, who was killed uh, in 1983. Um, so, yeah, they, they invaded Grenada. They came in, like, strong. And Grenada is yeah. an island of 100,000 people. And I have fa- members of family who, like, have vivid memories. Like, one of my aunties <laughs> was talking to me about being, like, on the beach with um, with guns, watching the Americans come in, like, ready to pop off on them. So really, a really interesting piece of history and one that, for whatever reason, I don't think is, is spoken about enough. I mean, like like I said, I don't know anything. I don't know nearly enough about it, like honestly. And But it's so interesting. And what's also interesting is, um, so I've spoken to some of my, my members of uh, family in Grenada and Karakou about it. And there's a real mixed bag of emotions towards it so some are kind of like yeah Maurice Bishop was great and others not so much to the point where I think even in Grenada they celebrate an independence day like they I think there's a day celebrating the arrival of the Americans in Grenada mad I guess we have to frame it in the wider context the Mm. wider context is the cold war right so having a communist government for America you have to think America since 1962 has the policy of saying any of my neighbors that are communists listen you're finished. You're yeah. finished. So from the Cuban Missile Crisis to the Iran Iran Contra Affair, all these things are happening around, well, from 62 onwards up to the 80s. So Grenada had no chance, man. It, they, yeah. they, made the wrong, they made the wrong choice politically in that context because their next door neighbour is America. Yeah, But what's exactly. interesting to me when I've been there is speaking to people about, about stuff. So speaking to people about, I think my cousin said to me, he said, after the Americans left, that's when crack came. <laughs> that's when crack and drugs came. He said, he goes, he remembers it. Yeah. He remembers, he goes, he goes, because they used to smoke there's just a lot of weed. There was a lot yeah. of weed there, right? He goes, afterwards, he goes, crack and cocaine. Obviously, crack's just a, a, a cooked up version mm. of cocaine. But he said, yeah, he goes, that's what he can remember. And whether whether that's his imagination or whether he's a, it's a true remembering yeah. of event, who knows? I guess it's not a well-known story outside the Americas, right? And, yeah. and that's... And that's and that's one of the problems. If you, I don't know if you've ever heard Maurice Bishop, a speech from Maurice Bishop, yeah. but you yeah, yeah. you understand why America was so afraid of him. I mean, what mm-hmm. a, a charismatic, handsome <laughs> man! And there's a speech that he gave in New York, maybe two months before he was assassinated, where he's talking to, I can't remember the name of the college, but it, it's one of these HBCUs, I think. So he's talking to a room full mm-hmm. of, of uh, African American students. And he's he's saying to them, you know, the fact that we are an English speaking nation has them afraid because if an English speaking nation with a ninety five percent black community or something like that um, can can do this, then it means that people in America, black people in America, can do this as well. It's almost like he's foretelling what's to come in a couple of months. It's almost like he knows. Um, but he raises some really interesting points just about the the power of language, you know, the fact mm-hmm. that this this nation of people who have been given this language can use this language to start a revolution. Whenever you see predominantly black place, black spaces like this, there's there's echoes of Haiti and the, ha- the Haitian Revolution in all of this. And again, linking it back to your work, the idea of um, of a matrifocal community populated by black people that are not fighting under the normal gender norms of a heteropatriarchal heteropatri- heteropatri- society is, is odd for them. 
Yeah. It challenges all the norms. It's yeah, a problem it for them. Because, <laughs> because, if, because if it challenges all the norms because it challenges the central premise of the Enlightenment, of the universal man. It never right. existed, right? It doesn't exist. So the universe, if the universal man is being decentered in practice by, by a group of people who we used to, used to basically force them to do shit, that's embarrassing. That's mm. embarrassing on every level, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the other thing to say about Haiti is the fact that voodoo, their spiritual beliefs, mm. that was central in that revolution. It's one of the ways mm. that they organised themselves. So again... Mm. I mean, how frightening for the colonizers who have decided that you will be underneath me and you will worship my gods and you will believe in the patriarchy. And then they're up against a group of people who have managed to overthrow them. And one of the central tenets of their organization was their African based spiritual mm. system. It's powerful isn't it? because when I was reading your work again, like some of the some of the kind of literature kind of points to that when people are talking about the family unit in in the Caribbean, they kind of um, the, the top of the hierarchy was a Christian married couple, yes, either with kids or not kids. Yes. And so when you have a, a system which is matrifocal, which sometimes they're married, sometimes you can't have it. Sometimes there's, there's a guy there, but he's just there. Like, right. All these things, <laughs> all these things there. You get me? Or sometimes, something like in my family, like in my particular family, extended family unit, I. My mum's got five sisters, and extended. Family. I've always been staying with women, so it's either okay. my gran, my aunt, or some some yeah. female figure, all the time. I rarely see anyone up until I'd say, if I'm honest, maybe about ten years ago. My my uncle came back on the scene, and he's st- he's still useless, but that's another <laughs> time. But, but you see, you get me, <laughs> yeah. But he's there. But and so and so when it was so if it for for I guess for a Western academic. It's mm. hard to understand, given that they've been trained in the idea of universal man. And, and on top of that, so my point was, on top of that, the Judeo-Christian notion of, 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 of the family of man, of Adam being a descent and, and Eve just being an extension of man. That's, mm. That will fuck your head. That will fuck all their heads up. You get me? Yeah. And that's why they tried so hard to, to fix the problem, as if to say it was a problem. But essentially, the problem was that their worldview had just been rocked that's essentially what it was, you know. Um, and and yeah, you're right. Like, where do you go from there? As a Western academic, you are a, a white man, let's say, you're gone into these colonies. So immediately you're feeling like you're above these people and you're seeing these societies get on with it in a way that you don't like or you don't recognise, you know. And it seems unchristian, whatever that means. Um, and it seems kind of anti-patriarchal. And yeah, so it, it became something that they wanted to fix. So in Jamaica, they had this this mass marriage movement where they basically tried to just marry off yeah. as many people as possible yeah. in order to, again, to fix the problem, quotation marks. Yeah, they just encouraged people to, okay. to get married. Um, and it didn't work, obviously. It, it didn't fix the problem. There was no problem to fix. But yeah, it, it, I think that was in the 1930s. One of the things that I think your work pushes us to think critically about is how sometimes men within our within our diaspora, our various our varied diaspora, will talk about how their respect for women comes from the fact that they are close with their mums or they have sisters or they have a daughter. 
Mm. And it's like, and sometimes like I'll say to T, like T will say something like that to me and sort of passing and I'll say, yeah, but we, there has to be a way of respecting women, matrifocal setups without it being linked to love and relationality how do we get to the point and I guess we're talking about the sort of gender relations more broadly here like embedded within our discourse that the only way for women to sort of be respected is if I can imagine someone disrespecting my daughter or someone disrespecting my mum and obviously that's that's not to say that that isn't something that it is a valid point to make but how can we push for more of a universal protection of women that doesn't link to whether you've had a matrifocal Mm -hmm. family set up so obviously in my work I'm quite I'm very complimentary of kind of matrifocal um families and and communities but I also have to recognize that there are limitations right and I think that this is this is one of the potential limitations of matrifocality and thinking through matrifocality is that it it positions women as central, but it positions women as central when they act as mother figures, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I don't. I mean, it's this is something that I also have to to kind of work through, and it's something that I think I think it's really important to reconcile. Um, actually, because you're right, um, Chantel. Um, just yesterday, I saw this this discourse of oh. I, I was just thinking about my little sister and so now I care about what's happened because it could have happened to my little sister and it's like well no it happened and you should care about it full stop you know Mm. Um, and so yeah I guess what it means is that we think it's going to mean thinking past matrifocality and perhaps uh, matrifocality is the starting point you know where we think about how people how black people specifically are connecting to each other you know, if if matrifocality has the potential to be radical, if matrifocality has the potential to offer extended or alternative networks of kinship, then there there had but there has to be a step further, you know. And yeah. I don't know what that that looks like, but it's but got to be there. I guess. Sorry, Leo. I think what you said makes sense. It's I I personally think it's a starting point, right? It's mm. a starting point where, again, I'm gonna in the person because I'm going to make it personal for myself it was a starting point for me right I am a product of patriarchy and I benefit from patriarchy and without knowing it you, you unknowingly do these things right so it wasn't till all my life being brought up with white women but I am also a man it wasn't until I went to university and started reading books and then that made me question stuff that I did and question how I view speaking to Chantel all these things here make you question stuff but if I didn't have that starting point that level of understanding the journey would be further and harder. So it's about, remember, so, so men, like most people, we have to unlearn stuff here. So it's a process of unlearning and it's a painful process. So sometimes we're, we're caught in a madness, all of us. So I'm talking to you, we're talking across purposes, but we're looking to do the same thing. Mm. I've had difficult conversations with my friends and difficult conversations with myself because, like I said, in the process of unlearning, but if I didn't have that starting basis of that matrifocal understanding, I would argue harder to make these jumps in logic where gender equality is a good in itself boy am on so fire today you know? <laughs> no, you are wow man's been lifting the weights and everything <laughs> <laughs> what do you need me for you don't need me for this conversation. 
<laughs> no, you know what it is. Yeah. See, when I read your stuff, boom, like the way my mind works, I like boy, I, I, there's bare ideas, and I'm I'm trying to write my own stuff. So I'm I'm reading your stuff today, and I'm and I'm writing. Thinking, no, that doesn't even make sense what I'm writing here because your stuff's creeping in. It's real, isn't it? Sociology or, or any form of study that anyone does, it has to be real. So that's why a man rates people like you because see them academics that write all their madness. Fuck all that, man. This is real, isn't it? Yeah, look, what this is a project of love, like I said. It Yes. You know that whole thing of academia needs to kind of offer some sort of level of objectivity? Absolutely mm. fucking not. There's no way. Yeah. It, <laughs> my work is always personal. This is why I'm looking at the Caribbean. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, yeah. This is this work has been a way for me to like understand my own family, right? I guess. So my dad died when I was one. He left my mum with four children. Like John knows how that woman managed anyway. Um, and then my stepdad came on the scene when I was maybe seven or so, and then they had another child. So even though my my family is is kind of a two parent family, I mean it is a two parent family. It's just I guess there's that rupture, and um, that you were talking about Tiso, which is which is great. Um, it's always been matrifocal. Like my mother is their very centre and you can never tell me anything ever, otherwise. Similarly, my grandmother on my mum's side, so this is my Karakou family we're talking about, um, she was married for over 50 years before my grand, my grandpa passed. So they had seven children. And uh, my mum's the only girl, so my family is full of men. So it's interesting to you say that you're saying that you never saw... You never saw men growing up. I only saw men. <laughs> like mm. literally only saw men. <laughs> but, but my grandmother is, I mean, my, my grandpa would like, you know, he'd do his authoritarian thing and, you know, he'd act like he was ruling the roost. Let's be honest, my grandma was the centre of that family always. She still is. She's 90, she'll be 95 in two months. And she what? is the centre of my world, you know. And so mm. it's, this is this has never been anything other than personal for me, and I think because it's personal, um, the stakes are a little bit higher when you you know when you're writing yeah. these things, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's personal. But I think it just means that there's just this little extra piece of love or care that goes into to the work, and that's when the work becomes. Or I think that's when the work has the power to be transformative. But I, I guess I was thinking about, again, situating your work in, again, my own experience, like my brief experience of being a, a stepdad. Like I was mad. Like when I started thinking back in hindsight now, I remember telling the kids that I placed their mum at the centre of everything. So mm. it everything revolves around their mum. Like you, we do, we do, everyone does things, but I made sure that they understood that you can't disrespect your mum because mm. I can't have that. It's not, it's not something I would do. So I started thinking, well, where did this come from? Where does this come from? And I realised... Like all the traits of me being a parent, like all the kind of the way people would associate it, um, typically authoritarian, patriarchal things, they don't come from. They weren't coming from my male step, male role model, so I didn't have any. It's coming from my mum, my grand, and any person that's kind of raised me. Mm. And I was thinking to myself, right? So they would, uh, people would typically understand those traits as being male traits, but they they weren't. They they, they, they had no they had no basis in that. It's it's crazy, man. Yeah, you work sick, sick, sick. Oh, <laughs> you guys are so nice wow <laughs> it, is. it is and do you know what Leanne what I really love about your work and what you're talking about now and it's making me feel really warm is the centrality of love and that is what we strive to do on this podcast that's what I try and do in my writing that's what I try to do within all my engagements I really do try and put 
and love and care within Mm. how I live basically but one of the things that I've sort of been thinking about more recently and this isn't me this isn't this isn't me um critiquing your work it's more thinking about how I can go to the next step as Tisa as Tisa was saying as you said like how can I go to the next step and going to the next step for me I'm thinking about how can I make sure that I'm still protected whilst I centre the love of others how can I make sure that like Mm. if I have I I have very much built my own matrifocal family and I'm a product mate of women as well but how can I make sure within both my family within my kin but also within how I develop as a scholar that that love that isn't to the detriment of the self yeah it is, does that does that does that make sense because because T said like like when you're talking about there like talking about being a stepdad and talking about the centrality of their mum like I think that's like 95% of me thinks that's power thinks that's powerful and I love that but there's the 5% of me now where I'm trying to go to the next step is thinking about how can I make sure that doesn't feel like pressured how can I make sure Mm -hmm. that because there's so much radical love central to the way we're talking about families here I think that next step is possible but it's just thinking about how we we have we we need all of those that are around us that are within our matrifocal setup within our communities to recognize that we are we're flawed but we're we're flawed individuals we're humans we're people Yeah, no, I I know what you're talking about. This is something I've been thinking about in relation to my own mum recently is, you know, the ways in which I have been guilty of putting her on a pedestal. Um, I mean, I've had so many conversations with my mum. I mean, I remember her telling me, you know, after your dad died, Leanne, I could have just done nothing. But I I chose to get up and I, I was like, well, that's amazing. But equally, that worries me because you were grieving and <laughs> that's too much pressure. But, and I, and I, she, she would have felt it necessary to get back up. Like there was no space for her to just break down, partly because she was a mother and she had children to look after. And I also think partly because she's a, she's a black woman and we don't have that space to just be vulnerable. There, there isn't that space, right? And so I've been thinking about, and so I make a really conscious effort to not put her on a pedestal, to recognise that my mum is just a person. She's a great person. I think she's fantastic. But she is a person and she's flawed. She makes mistakes. There are, and that's okay, you know, to give her the space to just, to vent if something's wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I think this question that you're asking is a really important one. How do we... And it is about kind of moving past the matrifocal. So yes, this can be transformative. Yes, this is a, a radical way of thinking about family and community. But it we ha- we can do more, you know. I think this is perhaps step one of decolonizing the family. And step two is some I don't know. I'm not there yet. Again, from my experience, I think it's been that process has been the deconstruction of of what I understand is a deconstructed family. So as a stepfather, when you're saying you don't want to put your parents on a pedestal, I it was the inverse. For me, 
I want it to be on beyond reproach, to be that, be the mm. ideal, be the aspiration for that kid. So I don't want to be the things that have held me back. So I try my best, even though I know I'm flawed and I fail. Those things I would, yeah. depending on the age of the kid, I would discuss that with him. But the younger ones, that's not what I want to portray. And when I when I came to discuss the flaws of how I felt in that deconstructed environment where there's no kind of hierarchical structure, I would talk to that. I would talk to my partner about my failures, how I felt. It's the way I had that space to speak to someone and say, "Bro, boy, man, I don't want to see the kid today because man feels embarrassed because I forgot something." And 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 it's that conversation. But as an adult. I'm I'm not I'm trying to portray a position to make those kids feel safe to make them to to be the ideal to be that thing that I mm. want them to be to have high expectations. So again, like I as as a kid myself, to my parents, I'm I look at my mum. I'm thinking, right, I can understand her now, but I can also understand why she didn't want to portray that, those weaknesses to me because yeah. she wanted to be that person. You get me? Yeah, a really interesting. It's funny how we ultimately we start seeing our parents in ourselves right as we get older 100% oh my god <laughs> you know my mum does this thing where she she won't let anyone leave her yard without some, something in their hand so if I'm leaving her <laughs> house, just this detergent <laughs> I mm. all the time. so silly I mean what is it to be a parent I guess and and what what does strength mean when you're raising children? And I mean, these aren't questions I can answer. I'm, I'm not a parent myself. But, you know, you're talking about like deconstructing the family, you know, mm-hmm. this being a process of deconstruction so we can build something new and better. And I guess it's I, all of these things come into question, then, don't they? Why can't mm-hmm. why do I need to talk to you? my mum in this certain way why does my mum need to talk to me in this certain way why am I talking to my children in this certain way what is it about this particular moment that I don't want them to see you know what am I hiding and why I guess the next step is is a whole heap of questions isn't it see with that stuff the idea of this kind of this deconstruction the so when I look at your kind of the major focal stuff, I look at anything of deconstruction, and I think that some of the stuff that you sent me, Chantal, I think stuff that some of the stuff that you you wrote about the blended family. Mm-hmm. See, when I see Chantal, she's my sister. I will do anything for Chantal. Mm-hmm. Boom! But it's someone you choose to be in your life. Yeah. It's a, that's it's a, it's a madness, and but that person becomes like family. Yeah. Uh, but in the family, in it, but family in the sense that I can't really explain it to someone. If someone said to me, "Define it," but I know it. So mm-hmm. is it is this thing we're talking about? Is it feelings? Is it a feeling that we, we're trying to give words to, or is it that way around? I don't know. When I've written in the past about blended families, taken very much from um, inspiration from brilliant black feminists like Patricia Hill Collins, mm-hmm. Hortense Villers, I'm kind of thinking about how they can be a place of recovery, a place of recovery and the place of healing from trauma from previous attempts at establishing a nuclear family. It's a little bit different to thinking about matrifocal families Mm. because I think that blended families themselves still need to go through a notion of reconstruction because I think blended families can can end up position them, themselves or trying to align themselves with the nuclear family which I'm very much in agreement with what you, your your writings about this Leanne that the nuclear family needs to be fully deconstructed like T says my brother like through and through possibility of blended families is people entering them who have been in nuclear families that have been unsuccessful 
And by that successful, I mean separation, divorce, and blended families offer an opportunity, a kind of an opportunity to make something different or to make mm-hmm. something that's centered, that has more love central to it rather than quote unquote tradition. But if blended families have the capacity to be more matrifocal, I think that they can be transformative as well. You've just given me so much to think about now. It's great. Yeah, I appreciate it so much. No, it is. And it makes me, it does make me feel warm talking about this stuff because we're obviously in like crisis right now. Like we're in a global pandemic. We've got a climate emergency. We've got far right government, all this stuff. And me and Tiso like day to day is sort of talking about or imagining or thinking about what is the future for our people, what the future for those around us and like talking about reading your work just presents so much possibility I think and Mm. so much possibility for the futures that we want a futures that centre love futures that aren't harmful futures that can be transformative and radical I I can't tell you how much I appreciate what you're saying like really thank you so much thank you for engaging with it and thank you for being so receptive to the ideas in it as well It, it honestly means the world like really so thank you one of the big things people always talk about right now is, like, if they say, right, things, we, we always talk about how things being really bad. And someone will say to me, well, how are you going to fix it? But mm-hmm. it's that lack of imagination, right? It's that lack mm-hmm. of imagination. I'm saying it's right in front of you. It's always been here. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's always been here. I've had a different shape of family. I've had a different way of love. And it's always been different. It's never, it's never followed the rule. And it's always been on the outside. It's always been on the outside of modernity, the outside of, mm-hmm. of, your, of your social norms. It's always been on the outside. But yet, it prospers. So therefore, there's always it's always been here. The alternative society that you wanted, the basis you wanted, is here. But you just need to look at it. Yeah, just use a bit of imagination. I don't know. Thinking imagination yeah. seems so radical at this point. And you know, <laughs> just like thinking about thinking imaginatively about freedom. It yeah, just, yeah. It fills me with so much like warmth. And I think we all just need that little bit of warmth at this particular moment. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> we do. Leanne, that was so powerful. Listeners, I feel like we've been on a journey together on that episode. I feel like it's an episode we needed. Just to give you guys some context, like it's actually it's the 5th of November today and we still don't know Trump or Biden, a president. Maybe when this episode comes out, we still won't know. But we're feeling, yeah, everyone's feeling quite. And we just got into lockdown again, first day of lockdown. So to have a conversation like this is a privilege. And Leanne, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Brilliant, brilliant. (laughs) Patrons, we've got another episode for you. So head over to the Patreon now and we'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 